The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Keep or Cut podcast. I am Chad Young, joined as always by Pete Ball. You can find us combined on Twitter at Keep or Cut, cut with a K. Uh, you can find us individually at Chad Young and at Pete B Baseball. Really excited to be here to talk about Keeper Leagues. We've been tweeting out this week some top 10 lists, position top 10s, looking at five by five Keeper Leagues. We know there's a lot of rankings out there. Hopefully these ones are a little bit different, a little bit interesting because we are focused on that keeper aspect of things. And so what we're going to do today in this episode is we're going to read through some of those lists and then discuss where we differ because, you know, Pete and I are not the same person. So we're not always going to see eye to eye on stuff. And so I think there's some really interesting debates to have here that will hopefully help you think through those decisions you're making as you're drafting or going through your auctions, whatever it is you're doing to get ready for the season, making keeper decisions at this point as well. So. Pete, you ready to go? Ready to read through these lists? Yeah, I'm ready to get through it, Chad. Let's dive in. Start off with catcher. I'll start with Pete's top 10. Pete, you've got Real Muto as your number one, Will Smith, Wilson Contreras, Adley Rutschman showing up all the way at number four, Gary Sanchez, Joey Bart, Sean Murphy, Sal Perez, Christian Vasquez, and Travis Darno. My top 10, I've got Real Muto and Smith at the top, just like you do. I've got Grandal up there. He's not even on your list. Wilson Contreras is my number four, Sean Murphy, Adley Rutschman, Travis Darno, Sal Perez. Then I've got Gary Sanchez and Christian Vasquez rounding out that top 10. I got to be honest, I thought I was sort of high on Gary Sanchez having him as the number 10 catcher. You got him all the way up at number five. What's up with that? There are many criticisms I think that can be made about my list. And I want to dive in on Sanchez in, in a second. I want to first identify, though, having not even having Yasmani Grandal on there. I guess to me, Chad, once we get to number nine on my list, which is Vasquez and number 10 is Darno, at that point, if that's where we're at in the draft, I just I don't care who I get, honestly, because I'm just piecing it together until I can find a long-term answer there. So to the folks listening, if you want to put Grandal at nine in your head and Vasquez at 10 and Darno off my list, that's perfectly fine. But yeah, let's, let's dive into Gary Sanchez. So Sanchez has had his fair share of injuries. On one hand, that's a that's a huge reason to avoid him, right? I mean, he's a he's a catcher who takes a lot of beating. These have been injuries that they're not like a broken bone where it's easy to identify, and then once it's fixed, it's fixed. He's dealt with groin injuries, a muscle injury um, in his bicep, so that's definitely a reason for concern. 
But on the other hand, it, it does kind of explain a lot of his struggles recently. You know, he broke out in 2017. If you want to say he broke out in 2016 when he was first called up, I wouldn't push back at all. I mean, he hit 20 home runs in like five minutes. Um, but in 2017, that tremendous year, he broke the Yankee catcher home run record with 33. He looked like an all-star for years to come. He made the all-star team, so on and so forth. And we were drafting him really high. And then in 2018, he dealt with a groin injury. As I said, it plagued him all season. It sent him out in late June. He re-aggravated it in late July, missed all of the month of August. So 2018 was that down year for him. And just one year ago, though, in 2019, he had 34 home runs. He rebroke his own record for the Yankees catcher home run record. Granted, he hit just 232, which can be a killer in the 5x5 format, and I think batting average gets ignored too much, but that was with a 251 expected batting average. So if you're telling me I could have a catcher who in 396 at-bats, just 106 games, can hit me 34 homers, you know, upper 70s RBI because he's not going to be batting very high in the lineup, I'll absolutely take that if it's going to come with a 250 average, which to be fair, I don't know if I'm going to get 250 out of Murphy, out of Vasquez, out of Darno. I think they could very easily hit below that line. That is certainly within their range of outcomes. Yeah, for sure. I think there's some other interesting stuff about Sanchez. If I look at his season last season, his chase rate was the lowest chase rate of his career. He had some contact issues, which is well known, but his swinging strike rate was 13.8% last year, which is high, but he's been at 13% two other times in his career. It isn't like crazy out of line. It's you've got a guy who's chasing less, who's not really swinging through pitches at that much higher rate than he was before. And I think the biggest thing with him is in a keeper format, he has upside that nobody else has, right? Yeah. He goes back to hitting, let's say he hits 250 with 30 home runs. He's not only your, your catcher this year, you're not only happy to have him for this year, you are locking him into your lineup for the foreseeable future. There aren't a lot of other guys. Like if I go back and I look at this keeper list, you know, Grandal, we talked about Real Muto last episode. Grandal and Real Muto are not young Wilson Contreras has been up and down. Darno is not young. Sal Perez is not young and hasn't been consistently great. Will Smith makes that cut for me. Sean Murphy makes that cut for me. And Sanchez makes that cut for me of guys who, if they do what I think they can do this year, I'm going to be keeping them for the foreseeable future. And I think that upside with Sanchez that he could go back to being a number one, number two catcher by next year is, is huge. And, and the other thing, Chad, is the Babbitt. I mean, look at the Babbitt from last year. He had a 159 Babbitt. Now, he's very slow. He's not going to be a guy who bats for a high Babbitt, but you're talking about somebody who impacts the ball, not just better than every catcher, better than most players in baseball. So that kind of upside, why not? Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. I'm still, the reason I've got him a little bit lower than you is I still think there is still a lot of swing and miss in that profile. I think he's going to be very BAPIP dependent. If you go back and look at his numbers over the years, when he has good BAPIPs, he has good years. And when he doesn't, he doesn't. He can he can still get you a lot of home runs with a low BAPIP, but you are looking at some risk of home runs without a lot else if he doesn't get those balls in play to fall in. And it seems to be up and you know hot and cold for him on that. No doubt. And I guess what it comes down to for me is, is really just how I view this position though. Because like if you use a high round pick on Alberto Mondesi and that blows up in your face because of the K rate, that's going to cost you. You're spending a very high pick on Alberto Mondesi, but with Gary Sanchez, if I'm getting him at like pick 180, and that's early, his ADP last time I checked was around 200. What's the big deal? I mean, if if, if I swing and miss or he gets hurt or he's terrible, okay, I'm gonna maybe at worst drop him and, and pick up 
you know, your max Stassi of the world. Is it that big of a deal? No. So at that point, I'm, I'm fine taking the risk. Yeah, his ADP right now on NFBC is 177. So right in that 180 range. I mean, you're, you're exactly right. And it's, he's coming off the board as the 11th catcher, especially in keeper leagues. It just seems crazy to let him fall that far because you're taking a bunch of guys above him like... Christian Vasquez is a perfectly useful fantasy catcher. I have no issues with Christian Vasquez, but he's not going to turn himself into a guy who carries your team. And Gary Sanchez at least has that upside. But I think your point about waiting on catchers, you're right. I mean, you you were saying it's sort of your 8, 9, 10 area. It's even higher for me. I've got a top five that I'm really interested in. And then after that, I just did a startup dynasty draft with some of the other folks from the PitcherList Discord community. 42 round draft. I drafted my catcher in the 42nd round. <laughs> I waited all the way into the end because early on I was like, all right, maybe I'll reach for Gary Sanchez and see if I can can't, can't get a dynasty guy I'm going to keep for a long time. He went earlier than I wanted. Real Muto went earlier than I wanted. Will Smith went earlier than I wanted. Sean Murphy I'm, I'm, is a guy I'm really high on. Uh, he had a really, really strong year last year. I was hoping to grab him. If you go back and look at his numbers from last year, his exit average exit velocity was 92.2. Um, he had a max exit velocity of over 112, 48.1% hard hit, 12.7% barrel rate. Sean Murphy had a great year last year. He's still young. He should be hitting higher in the lineup this year, which will help him as well. So I'm, I'm super intrigued by him. He also went sooner than I thought. And once those guys were off the board, I was just like, you know what? I'm just waiting. And I don't really care if I get Darno or Perez or Vasquez or I don't honestly I don't even remember who I ended up with. Um, hopefully it was someone good, <laughs> but I, we'll see how that plays out. But it's just a position where I think you can you can churn through guys if you need to. It's not a big deal if if you have to drop a catcher and pick up someone else unless you're going to get one of those top few guys. I mean, look at the last couple of years, Chad. Right, last year with Austin Nola, the year before that with Mitch Garver. I mean, you've got to be pretty lucky or really on your game, on your fab game, whatever it might be to land those guys. But if you do, I mean, <laughs> you didn't need to draft a catcher at all. Definitely kind of the nature of the position. Yeah, for sure. And it's also why I think as we go through these lists, Adley Rutschman and, and Joey Barton, your list, he wasn't on my list, but those two guys are popping up on these lists in part because catcher is such a wasteland that if you can hit on a prospect like that, it's worth taking them early. I have a much harder time jumping up for, you know, we're about to talk first base. I have a much harder time jumping up for a Torkelson or a Vaughn as my first baseman of the future because there's so many actually good first basemen out there that the risk is much higher. At catcher, you know, if I draft Adley Rutschman and have him wasting away on my bench for half the season until he gets called up. Then I churn through some other guys. I take Pedro Severino as his handcuff late and it's fine. And I'm going to get just as much, maybe I won't get as much out of Severino as I will out of like Sal Perez or Christian Vasquez, but I might. And I don't feel that confident in saying that those other guys are that much better. It's just so unclear at this position. And if you then hit on Rutschman, if he comes up and becomes the star we think he can be, you get to keep him for years and years and you don't have to deal with this problem. And it is a super unpleasant problem drafting catchers. Right. And and even if, if Rutschman comes up and he's just fine, he's not a star, he's got his problems, that half season of Severino and half season of Rutschman is probably not going to be so far off from a full season of Christian Vasquez or Travis Darno. So is it really necessary to take a catcher that high? I don't think so. Yeah, totally. Let's jump to first base. Your top 10, Pete. You've got Bellinger, Freeman, Vlad Jr., DJ LeMayhew, 
Pete Alonzo, Jose Abreu, Paul Goldschmidt, Dom Smith, Matt Olson, and Luke Voigt. I've got Freeman at the top. Bellinger is my number two. I've got LeMahieu at third. Then I've got Pete Alonzo a little bit higher than you did. Paul Goldschmidt a little higher than you did. Voigt a little higher than you did. Matt Olson, Dom Smith. Then I've got Vlad Jr. coming in at ninth. You add him up at three. And Jose Abreu at 10. And there's a lot of stuff on this list we can talk about. But I think the, the first place for me to start is... Everyone I talk to, Freddie Freeman is the guy at first base, and you've got Bellinger ahead of him. Yeah. First of all, obviously, Bellinger's six years younger, right? So in a redraft, maybe I'd consider Freeman over him. I probably would take Freeman over him unless I was worried I was not going to be able to get stolen bases later. But I mean, really, it's just it's speed and age. Bellinger made an adjustment for really no reason last year. It cost him. He's still absolutely elite. He's six years younger than Freeman, like I said. And he steals bases, which Freddie Freeman does not do. He's in the 91st percentile in sprint speed in 2020. He was in the 90th percentile in 2019. He was on pace last year for his best year of stolen bases ever. And we've probably seen Freeman ceiling the last two years. And I know that's going to aggravate a lot of Atlanta fans, but... yeah, I mean, Freeman's amazing, but do we expect him to continue to get better as he gets older? He's not Tom Brady, whereas Bellinger is still if, barely is Tom Brady. Have, have we considered um, that possibility? Is, I was thinking, yeah, I'll take him 1.01 if, uh, if he is Tom Brady. So. <laughs> of course he will. Yeah, no, I think you're right that we probably have seen Freeman's ceiling. The, the bigger question with Freeman isn't have we seen his ceiling, it's can he maintain that ceiling, right? I mean, I, I don't think... I don't think even Atlanta fans are looking out there and being like, just wait till you see what Freddie Freeman will do when he really develops. Like, that's not the point we're at with him. He's now put up a Wobo over 400 three of the last five years. The two years he was below were 378 and 387, which are still very, very good. Bellinger's hit that once. He's got a 415 in 2019. He had a 380 in 2017. Granted, he was 21 in 2017. So, like, there is some development left there. I have a little bit of concern about Bellinger from last year. I think that, you know, I agree with you. It sounds like he made an adjustment for no reason and he just has to go back. That's not always that easy to do. And so I'm not, I I still, I think there's a little bit more risk with him. And I think that's the bigger thing that keeps me from putting him ahead of Freeman. They have similar upside. I think Freeman's much more likely to reach it. And while Bellinger's six years younger, I'm usually in a keeper league not thinking more than, let's say, two, three years down the line. And from that perspective, yes, I think there's a better chance I'm going to be happy with Bellinger in five years than I am with Freeman when he's you know 36. But I don't see Freeman slipping anytime soon. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good if he's my first baseman for the next three years. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, I'm, I'm all about really the short term in terms of your, your keeper league goals, especially in leagues that aren't dynasties where you really should never be going through a, quote, rebuild. But I guess I'm looking at it as, can I maintain a really good team by taking Bellinger? Because Bellinger may not be as good as Freeman over the next three seasons, and that might even be going a little far. We'll call it the next two. But then after that, I'm going to still have an elite player in Cody Bellinger, whereas who knows when the drop-off's going to come for Freeman. And again, it's kind of sounding like I'm I'm being really hard on, on Freddie Freeman. I don't mean to be. I think he's absolutely amazing. But if Cody Bellinger can be close to Freddie Freeman production, which over the last two years, you could argue he has been maybe definitely not in 2020, not but last year, <laughs> yeah, definitely not last year, but you can see that he could kind of maintain that kind of pace and, and, and keep up with Freeman, not necessarily in batting average, but certainly in power, certainly in RBI and definitely in stolen bases. Then, I mean, I'm fine with taking that slight hit for the more long-term success. Then as opposed to like completely selling out and taking Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who is obviously 
much further away. But you've got Vlad third on your list. Let's talk a little bit about Vlad. How does he pop up? I mean, obviously the potential with Vlad is is huge, maybe bigger than anyone else in, in baseball, to be honest. But you've got him ahead of some guys who have been very good. The obvious comparison for me, I think, is actually Pete Alonso, who's also young, but has actually had that huge breakout season. He struggled last year, but has done stuff that Vlad hasn't done. So what what gets Vlad that high on your list? I mean, Vlad has really just had to make one crucial adjustment, and that's to hit less ground balls. I feel like he, he came up with so much hype that our expectations were maybe a little bit off base, but now they're actually getting a little bit too low. I'm trying to find the statistic right now of, of what he did last year. Here it is. So out of qualifying players in 2020, who had a hard hit percentage over 50% and a K percentage less than 20. If I've already read this stat, I apologize, but it just it blows my mind. So they barely strike out, which means you have to pitch to them. And when you do, they usually hit it pretty hard. The first four names, Juan Soto, Bryce Harper, Corey Seager, Freddie Freeman. The fifth name and the only other name on that list is Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He's a guy who's always had this upside, and he's coming in in this ama- the best shape of his life, right, Chad? Wouldn't we love to say that, that we're in the best shape of our lives? But I- I'm not going to ignore that, right? I'm, I'm definitely not going to ignore that for somebody who has this much upside. I don't think he's been as not living up to the hype as people would maybe suggest or think that he has. And I'm ready to just see him take that next step forward. I would definitely rather have him in a keeper over all the other names on my list. Yeah, and I think you know the other, the other thing with Vlad is he is not yet 22. <laughs> Uh, he has put up some some you know solid major league seasons. Neither of his seasons are great, but they are both good, solid major league seasons before he could legally drink, <laughs> at least in the U.S. In Canada, he could drink, so maybe that wasn't an issue. But he was he was he's been really young, and, and so I do think there is still a lot a lot of upside in that bat. You're absolutely right when you look at his contact. His contact is off the charts good. Uh, it's another case where. For me, there are so many good first basemen, and I'm so focused on winning now, especially in a keeper, like I said, versus a dynasty where I want to win every year. I'm worried I'm leaving too much on the table because while he could make that launch angle adjustment this year, he also might not. And so there's some risk there. But on the other hand, in that dynasty draft I was mentioning, he was, I wish I could remember which pick I took him. I took him as one of my early picks, maybe my third pick, uh, maybe my second. I can't remember now, but I took him pretty early because I was just like, this is a case where in a dynasty format rather than a keeper where I'm keeping everybody where it's harder to get that young talent. I'm, I'm super high on him. I just think in a keeper league, especially where you might have limited keepers and you're, you know, you're taking him over someone else as a keeper. There's just more risk there in the short term than there is in going and getting a, a Pete Alonso or a Paul Goldschmidt or a Matt Olson, I think to, help you win this year. Yeah, and I think it, it's an important distinction to make, right? Keeper versus dynasty. At the same time, when I when I look at Vlad, he's a lot closer than your Spencer Torkelson or, or Andrew Vaughn or Tristan Cassis. Like to me, would I don't think anybody in the baseball world would be surprised if at this time next year we're talking about Vlad as a as a first round pick. So he he's right there. And so when I think about my short term goals in a keeper league, he still kind of fits the bill for me. He may not. He obviously doesn't have the the track record of even Pete Alonso, who you mentioned, or or deep, certainly not DJ LeMahieu or Jose Abreu. And yet, I could see him getting there this year and even being better going forward. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. Let's jump over to second base. 
I'll start with your top 10 list at second base. You got Ozzy Albies, DJ LeMayhew, Cattell Marte, Jeff McNeil, Brandon Lowe, Whit Merrifield. Number seven is Kavan Biggio, Keston Hira at eight, Jose Altuve at nine, and Nick Madrigal at 10. I've got LeMayhew one, Albies two. We flipped those, but not a lot of change there. Merrifield, I've got three, Lowe four, McNeil five, Marte six. You had him at third. Biggio and Hira and Altuve, we both have at 789. And I've got Muncie at 10 instead of Madrigal. I really want to talk to you about Nick Madrigal because he is a guy who, honestly, I didn't really consider him for my top 10. And I'm curious to know what was it that got you to put him in there over, let's say, a, a Muncie who I, I had in there instead of him. Yeah, that's fair. You know, I, I kind of look at Muncie and Mustakas as very similar. You know, I think you could you could have put Mustakas at number ten, and I, I wouldn't even notice much of a difference. It wasn't it wasn't putting Madrigal ten was tough, but it wasn't tough because of Muncie. It was tough because of Madrigal, and really because of how thin the position is. Do I really like him more than Gavin Lux? I don't know. Do I really like him more than Muncie? Apparently, I'm not entirely sure, but I do think that batting average and stolen bases are becoming the two hardest categories to find in five by five formats. And you could make the case that Madrigal is already very good at both. Second base is becoming the hardest position to address behind catcher. And Madrigal, obviously, like all of these guys, is a second baseman. But not only is a second baseman, helps you in those two very difficult categories. Look, he, he currently doesn't do anything for power. It was a minuscule fly ball percentage, pull percentage, poor average exit velocity. Uh, his hard hit percentage wasn't good. His average launch angle was four degrees. With all it said, though, it's out of this world contact skills. And who's to say that he can't one day develop power? Um, maybe a lot of people, right? I, I don't think anybody projects him for power going forward, but he did have a max exit velocity of 112 miles an hour. Maybe there's something there. We've seen a lot of guys develop power late. Yeah, I don't see the power coming at all. And so I think that makes a big difference in in how I value him. I think the other concern I have with Madrigal is I think there's a reasonable chance you get pretty empty average out of him. And I know he's shown some speed in the past, but in 2019 and 2020, his first real sort of high minors and then major league tests, right? Starting midway through 2019, he got to double A. He then went to triple A. 2020, he was in the majors. Across those three levels, he stole a total of 20 bases and got caught 10 times. And so I am a little concerned with him that the White Sox are going to tell him to stop, that he's going to be a guy who he's, he's going to hit in the ninth spot of the lineup. At least it looks like that's where he's likely to hit. He's going to get on base and all of a sudden you're going to have Tim Anderson up there and Abreu coming and Eloy coming and Lou Bob coming and all these big bats behind him. And are you really going to risk him getting caught a third of the time? I don't know. Now, maybe that's just noise, right? Double A, he stole 14 and got caught six times. In triple A, it was four steals and three caught stealing. In the majors, it was he only tried three times and got caught once. So maybe he's fine. Maybe he'll get back up to a 75, 80% effective rate. But that lineup can mash the ball. And they got a bunch of guys who put the ball in play too, right? You got like Anderson puts the ball in play, then you got a bunch of guys bunch of guys behind him who can crush the ball. I don't know that I want Madrigal running. Now, they've got Tony LaRusa managing that team, so who knows what to expect from him. Um, but I, I worry a little bit that he he becomes a guy who gives you legitimately maybe a 320, 330, 340 batting average, right? I mean, he could he could put up some really high batting average numbers and almost nothing else. 
Yeah, that could certainly be the case. Larusa, kind of old school, so maybe I'm holding out hope that there are some stolen bases in store for Madrigal. But if, if you told me, let's even lower his average by 40 points, let's just call him a 300 hitter. If he can still manage to get me those 15 to 20 steals, it, they're just so much more rare than they've been in the past. Now, you're right about the concern because the lineup is loaded. I wouldn't want him necessarily running either, but we'll just kind of have to see how that plays out. I know the White Sox have kind of been a pain in the neck for stolen bases as it is. But looking long-term, he kind of just hit the ground running in the major leagues. And even if he doesn't have the volume of appearances or even attempts, the fact that that on-base percentage is going to be so, so high, I think he will be able to maintain a decent stolen base pace. It's legitimate concerns. I, again, it's it's not so much that I want to defend Madrigal, although I should. I put him on my list. It's more once you get past nine, I think there's, to me, a clear drop-off. And I know that's going to upset Dodger fans with both Muncie and Gavin Lux. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And I think you're right. I mean, you got Muncie, you got Moustakis, you even got guys like Tommy Edmond slotting in there, right? So there are some options there. Madrigal, I, I do think he's coming off the board at NFBC as the 19th second baseman off the board at pick 191. At that point, maybe that's a pretty good value and maybe the possibility of a 330 average in 2025 stolen bases is worth it. To me though, it's the, the risk is too high to put him in my top 10. But if I can get him you know, borderline top 20, I can see it. He's still not a guy I love. He's still not a guy I'm going to end up with on many teams, if any. But you're right to point out the upside there of just absolutely filling up two hard-to-fill categories for you. There aren't a lot of guys who can do that. you got a lot of guys who will steal you a lot of bases with low average, and you got a lot of guys who will get you a high average without running. It's a nice, it's a nice combination, and it is rare. So let's jump down to the other half of the middle infield at shortstop. We both have the same guy at number one. This is probably not a surprise to anybody, but Tatis is number one for both of us. We also both have Trey Turner at number two. After that, some differences. You've got Seager at three, Lindor four, Story five, Bichette six, Franco at seven, which we should probably talk about. Gleyber Torres at eight, Xander Bogarts at nine, Carlos Correa at 10. Starting from three, I've got Story, Lindor, Bogart, Seager, Bichette, Tim Anderson, Gleyber Torres, and I've got Adalberto Mondesi at number 10, and I don't really feel very good about that. <laughs> and so I'm not going to start there, though, because I'm I'm really interested to know. I've got Xander Bogarts at five. You've got him at nine. You're the Boston guy. I'm not the Boston guy. So <laughs> what gives? Why is Xander so low? Yeah, that could just be me being the pessimistic Bostonian, but it's really not. It has very little to do with him and, and everything to do with the guys in front of him. I look at those first five names as interchangeable and just absolutely elite. I know Trevor Story all the way down at fifth might actually raise some eyebrows because he's arguably the best of that group. You know, when you consider the sample size from Tatis, you could easily make the case that Trevor Story is the best shortstop in baseball. And I, I wouldn't push back. Still pretty young plays a course. We'll see for how long. But those first five are absolutely over Xander Bogarts. I would never question. And then I've got, you know, Bichette, I've got Torres, and I've got Wander Franco. Now, the Franco ranking is very aggressive, especially considering he's still very young. Like, would it really surprise us if he didn't taste the major leagues this year? I think it would, but it's not completely out of this world. I just, I'll go age there. I think any of those guys could put up just as good of a season as Bogarts. And I love Bogarts. He's he's pretty much a, a, a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. He's very good. He's going to give you some decent power. He's a very smart base runner, and that's where the stolen bases come from. And he's going to bat for a high average in a great lineup, in a great ballpark. If he's my shortstop. 
great. I just I like the ceilings of the guys in front of him, a little bit younger, keeper format. I'm going to kind of lean that way. After those top five, I think you could have put my next four in any order, and I would have been okay with that. And then, you know, Correa, Tim Anderson, have your pick. Even Marcus Simeon, who you know I really like, um, could be considered there. But Correa, much, much younger. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, for you, your top five that you keep referring to, Tatis, Turner, Seager, Lindor, Story. To me, there's a top four of Tatis, Turner, Story, Lindor, and then Bogarts and Seager I have as sort of more interchangeable. I think I think Seager's more at that level than I think he is at the, the next tier up, mostly because of the risk, because of the up and down nature of his career, because there has been some injury history there. A year ago, I would have said, you got to wonder if he doesn't risk losing his job if he keeps struggling with Lux coming. I think that's off the table now. I'm just a little bit less confident in him than I am in those top four. And I think Bogart's that that sort of, he gives you a little bit of everything, right? He's a guy who give you 10 stolen bases and 25 home runs with plenty of runs and RBIs and a good average. That's pretty useful. And, you know, yes, he's a little bit older than some of those other guys. He's only 28. He, he seems like he's been around forever because he came up at 20. Right. I think part of what happens with a guy like Xander is you're like, oh, he's like the veteran of this group. Like, yeah, he is, but that's not that doesn't mean he's old. And, and I think again, when I think keeper leagues and I'm thinking two, three, maybe four years down the line, I have no reason to think Bogarts is gonna start declining anytime soon. And so I'm pretty comfortable with him being up there. I do want to talk a little bit about Mondesi because I really struggled with this tenth spot. Part of why I struggled with it is there's a lot of guys I don't like at shortstop. I think Dansby Swanson could be in there, but he's sort of like Xander Bogarts, but worse at everything. <laughs> like he's he's a he's a jack of all trades, but not quite as jacked as Xander. Javi Baez, like I know he's got a good track record, but that, that swing and miss has always been there, and it could get ugly fast, as we saw last year. Correa might be the the toughest choice for me to leave out there. I'm a big fan of Marcus Simeon. We've talked about him in past episodes, I would, but I don't think he jumps up quite this high yet. I'm a big fan of Didi Gregorius. I'm, I'm perfectly happy to end up with him as a shortstop, but not in my top 10. Mondesi, in the meanwhile, he's going as the fifth shortstop off the board at NFBC with an ADP of 23.5. I think that's just downright crazy. I don't understand why people are taking it that high. Well, I shouldn't say that. I do understand. And it's the reason I put him in my top 10, which is the upside, if he proves he can get on base enough, is he will steal you more bases than anyone else in baseball. Right? I think that is like that is the upside that's there for Adalberto Mondesi. In a 5x5 five five league, there is always value to going out there and just racking up those steals wherever you can get them. And there are not a lot of guys out there who you can pencil in for 50 stolen bases if they play a full season. However... He is a bad hitter, like bad, bad. And we have seen this before with, with Billy Hamilton. And I think Billy Hamilton is the perfect comp for Mondesi. Mondesi's probably got more upside in the bat than Hamilton did. But man, is that a, it's a similar situation where you're like, if this guy can get on base and hold a job, he's going to steal me a ton of bases. I just don't know if he can get on base enough to hold that job. And so there is no chance. I, he's a guy who I, you know, I don't play a ton of five by five. If I were, I would end up with very, very few shares of Mondesi because he's going to go too early for me. But that upside, and if he if he develops even a little bit of power, if that bat develops even a little bit, when I think about keeper leagues, being able to pencil him in for the next three, four years as a guy who 
can get on base enough, can hit for just enough power to have some value and can steal me 50 bases, there's just big, big upside there. I think he's pretty unlikely to reach it, which is why I'm never going to end up with him. But that's that's what brought him into my top 10. It, it is. It's that potential of the, you know, 1550 season, which is why he's going so early. And it's it's odd because you're right. He's just a bad hitter. You know, you cite an emergence of power as a, as a reason to get excited if he ever showed it. And I agree. I think the 14 homers in 2018 may be a little bit of an outlier based on the on the data, but I would also take just an improvement in his walk rate. You know, it's gone up each of the last three seasons. His chase rate went down last year. So maybe if he can just get on base a little bit more, then then I'd be more interested. Um, I just I worry for the same reasons you did the the Billy Hamilton factor, and I think he's a much this is this is sad to refer to Adalberto Mondesi this way, but I think he's a much better hitter than Billy Hamilton, yeah, uh, which sure, definitely says sure. Marwell Hamilton than it does with Mondesi. There's still that possibility he hits 220, and okay, he steals you 40 bags, but how much did that cost you? Because from that position, you got very little power, very few runs, because now that I think Benintendi's there, I don't know where Mondesi's going to hit in the lineup. So there's a, there's a lot that could go wrong. I don't get sidetracked by the upside quite as much. Not, I'm not saying as much as you, but as much as yeah. his ADP on NFBC. I no, think 100%. Kevin and I, I think, you know, the, the thing that, that is a little bit intriguing is his his max exit velocity is 111. His average exit velocity is 90.6. His hard hit is 39.1. Those are not bad numbers last year. And so there there is some of that upside there. I think for me, it's less his walk rate. He's never walked. I I'll live with that. He strikes out way too much for a guy who doesn't bring anything else to the table with his bat. And so what I'm concerned with is his his swinging strike rate and his contact rate, right? His contact rate, even in the zone last year, was 73.3%, which is just not very good. He had a 20.1% swinging strike rate. The year before that, he was at 21%. The year before that, he was at 18.1%. Like He's always run really high swinging strike rates. He's just got to get the bat on the ball. And I would take a drop in his walk rate if it came with a drop in his swing strike rate because he was being more aggressive and making more contact. I'm totally good with that from him. He's not a guy... The reality is, if you're in an on-base league, he's even less valuable than maybe in an 5-by-5 in five five because his on-base percentages aren't going to be good. His average at least might be good, but his on-base is going to be bad. But that's fine for a five by five. I just I need to see him strike out less and tap into some of that power to even think about him at that ADP. That ADP to me is just crazy, just crazy. Yeah, with with that speed, I mean, I, I'm kind of with you. Actually, I, like I'm I'm not really holding out hope in the walk rate. I just see a slight increase each of the last three years and a decrease in the chaser. So I'm like, maybe there's there's something there. But actually, if you just put the ball in play more, especially like the ground ball rate. I'm fine even if there's not power, but if you can get the average up because you're putting the ball in play so much and you are the arguably the fastest player in baseball, then fine. Okay, I'll take that. But as it stands right now, yep, way totally too pricey agree. for me. So let's jump over to our last infield position, look at third base. At third base, we both have Jose Ramirez at number one, and then there's a bunch of differences. So after Ramirez, you've got Bregman at two, Manny Machado three, Rafael Devers at four, Anthony Rendon at five, Arenado six, LeMahieu seven, Moncada 8, Eugenio Suarez at 9, and Alec Bohm at 10. After Ramirez at 1, I've got Machado at 2, Rendon at 3, Arenado 4, Bregman 5, Suarez 6, Devers 7, Biggio 8, Matt Chapman at 9, and Alec Bohm at 10. 
there's a bunch of stuff going on here. We actually have a, this is probably more disagreement than we've had almost anywhere else. Let's start with Nolan Arenado. You have him at six, I'm at four. It's not a huge difference, but what's what's driving him down your list? Because he's been a sort of top four solid third baseman for a long time now. Yeah, no, actually, I was I was getting ready to defend him, uh, and then I realized that I have him low, lower than you. <laughs> I love Nolan Arenado. It, it's more, again, it's kind of like Xander Bogarts, where it's it's just the names in front of him. I do think there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment period leaving cores. Now, I'm not one of those people who are silly enough to look at his away numbers and just say, well, that's who he is away from course. That's ridiculous. And we have so much data that would suggest that's just not the case for anybody. Obviously, course is a great park to hit in, but when you leave it, it's, it's more difficult when you call cores your home and then you leave. So the away numbers should be a little bit lower. But anyway, to the point, I love Arenado. I think he's going to be great. I do think it's going to take him a little bit of an adjustment period to get used to St. Louis. We'll see what's going on with the shoulder, so on and so forth. But those five names in front of him, I just really, really like. I think, you know, I know you want to dive into Devers, so I won't go too much. But especially Devers and Bregman, who I kind of feel like because of a down, and even Arenado to an extent, because of a down 2020 where it was like 60 games, Nobody had the proper preseason spring training stuff going on. They had bad years. Some of them were injured. Whatever. Like, I'm ready to throw that out. They're too good. There's too much talent there to worry about what happened in 20. Yeah, I think that's that's totally fair. Reasonable or not, the other concern with Bregman is how much was he benefiting from the trash can scheme? (laughs) And it seems ridiculous to still be talking about it. But, man, it's like you look at his numbers and realize that that's sort of the big thing that was taken away from him. And is it possible, if not probable, that that's just a coincidence? Maybe. But that is enough for me to knock him down the list a little bit. And and I think, you know, for me, my top five third basemen, Ramirez, Machado, Rendon, Arenado, Bregman, like, I like all those guys. I like all those guys a lot. If you wanted to tell me you were going to move, you know, Bregman up a little bit, fine. I could see that. I, I think he goes to the bottom of that list for me just because I think there is a little bit more a little bit more risk than with those other guys. Arenado, one of the things that stands out for me is he has incredibly good plate discipline numbers, even on the road. His, his career away strikeout rate is 16.3%. A big driver for the problems Rockies hitters have on the road is is that breaking balls break in totally different ways in normal environments than they do in cores. So when you look at Arenado and see he has a 16.3% strikeout rate on the road, he is, in half of his games, facing alien pitches that break in ways he can't imagine that he never gets to see and still only striking out 16.3% of the time. And I look at that and it's like, man, get him into a normal environment where he can adjust to those pitches, get used to those pitches and actually see what they look like. And and I think he goes right back to being the guy he's been for his career, his overall numbers for his career. And and so that's why I've got him so high. But you're right. I do want to talk about Devers. You have him as fourth. I have him as seventh. I've got him behind Eugenio Suarez, plus those top five that, I, that I'd mentioned before. And I think that there's a gap between him and that top group, but you've got him in that top group. So w- what are you seeing there that I'm, that I'm maybe not? Sure. I mean, Devers has been the casualty of two massive slumps to start the last two seasons. But otherwise, he has, he's had just as much pedigree, if not more, than a lot of the guys in front of him and maybe actually I, I shouldn't go that far I mean we're talking about all guys who are, are backed up with 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 strong pedigree but at just 24 years old 
he's already accomplished a lot at the major league level. And I think when I look at three offenses last year, Houston's, the Red Sox, and Oakland, for different reasons for all of them, especially in Houston's case, those hitters, I almost just want to kind of give them a mulligan because I that not none of those offenses looked in sync doing what they should be doing, at least on a fantasy level. Devers got better each month last year. His hard hit percentage was right around where it usually is. He was striking out a lot more, but again, we're talking that that goes down in those last couple of months. I think there was an adjustment for the Red Sox without Mookie Betts, and this is a player who has already put forward one of the best third base seasons of the last few years in his, I don't want to call it a breakout because he was already very good, but in that 2019 season where he just went absolutely off. Not only did he have 32 homers that year, he had 54 doubles with an OPS over 900. So if I'm going to be consistent and kind of look at that 2020 season for some of these guys who the talent is there, and I'm not doing this across the board with 2020, but if the talent is there and you had a poor three months, I'm not going to send you flying down my rankings. And as someone who had Devers in this area last year, I'm going to be consistent and have him there once again. Yeah, I, th- I think for me, the the issue isn't isn't the t- small sample from 2020. It's that that 2020 looks so much like his 2017 and 2018, where where strikeout issues sort of capped his value. When you look at sort of his career as a whole, that 17% strikeout rate in 2019 just looks like an outlier. He didn't do that by having a big jump in his contact percentage. His swing strike rate was at 12% in 2019. It had been at 124 and 13.1 the years before, so better, but not a ton. He chased more in 2019 than he had in 2018 or 2017, and he chased more in 2020 than any of those years. So even in that breakout year, he was showing a propensity to chase more, and that's continued. And I just look at this, and it's like he swings through too many pitches, his career is on an upward trend in how often he swings through pitches. His career is on an upward trend in terms of how often he chases pitches. And I think that 2019 is an outlier. And so I end up walking away from him saying, like, I think he's really good. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying he's outside my top 10. I'm not saying don't draft him at all. I don't see him being in that top tier. I just, I think third base is so talented and so deep. I'm just, yeah, I'm not I'm not in on him. And and I think when I look at like his ADP at NFBC, he's coming as the seventh third baseman off the board, although one of those is LeMayhew, who you could argue is in a third baseman. His ADP is around 43. I'm not going to take him there very often. I think I'd rather wait and at much lower cost get a Eugenio Suarez, a Jeff McNeil. I think there's more interesting options at better cost. I think he belongs in that six or seven range. I just think it's he's he costs too much right now. And I don't think he's in that top tier, and I don't think he gets back to it. Yeah, I mean, based based on 17 and 18, I could see that. But I, mean, I think it's, we got to keep in mind, this is his age, like 21 and 22 seasons, I think. And there's still reasons to to look and say, like, okay, well, he's actually continued to show improvement then, then since then, particularly in the exit velocity. The power has been, I don't want to say a concern for Devers, but if you take 2019, for example, and again, we can call this an outlier year because based on the, the very limited sample we have from him so far, it kind of is. But he didn't hit a home run for the first like month and a half. He hit 32 homers in the last like, I don't know, five eighths of the season. So he's shown in spells the the ceiling that we all knew when he was coming up, he's capable of. And so he continued to show improvement. We got the outlier kind of 2020. 
I still think, you know, I mean, and there were still things to kind of latch onto last year. His line drive rate was, was, was well up um, from where it's been for his career, even though the strikeouts were out as well. So I, I agree with you in the strikeouts. I think when, when all is said and done, we'll look back at 2019 as this odd outlier year in terms of the K percentage for Devers, and that might limit his batting average potential. But all the other tools for me are there. So I'm just I'm looking forward to seeing him put together in a great park to hit in this year. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think his story is a little bit similar for me to Yon Mankata, who had that great 2019, had a really down 2020. His 2019, he's he is not Devers. Um, his but his 2019 was his one year with a case K percentage below 30. Devers, it was below 20, but it was his one year doing that. They are both guys who hit the ball really hard when they make contact. Mankata struggled with that last year, but that may have been part of his recovery from COVID. It's sort of hard to know. But those are both guys who I look at, it's like they crush the ball when they hit it. I'm not sure they hit it quite enough to justify their rankings or their or their values. And like I said, I, I still have Devers as the seventh best guy at a really deep position. He's not a guy I'm saying is terrible. I just I don't know. I'm I'm not a I'm I'm not a believer quite at the level you are, I think. No, that's fair. And and we can touch upon Moncada quickly if you want it because I, I think criticism of having him in the top 10 is totally fair I don't think anybody at least based on the comments that we've received from players themselves and I, I could be missing somebody but I don't think anybody other than obviously Eduardo Rodriguez who had to miss the whole season was impacted by COVID more than Yon Moncada he had no endurance it was a struggle basically just to get through every day of the season even when he was playing so if anybody in baseball deserves a write-off for their, their 2020 production. I think it's Makata. And yet even still it's fair to criticize. Okay. Well we can throw out 2020, the strikeout percentage, the walk rate, everything else is still kind of concerning, especially the whiff rate with, with Moncada, but just 25 years old that I, I kind of viewed that 2019 as a breakout. He, he showed important strides, even in K percentage where his strikeout percentage dropped about six points in 2019. And when you consider this was a former, you know, was he, I think he was the number one overall prospect in baseball. It looked like it was just kind of coming together at 24 years old. And and all of a sudden there was a lot of value there. So it's a debatable ranking, but I would still kind of like him about that high in in a keeper. Yeah, I think that's fair. I I was a little down on Mankata going into last year because I felt like the 2019 was a little bit of a mirage. His swinging strike rate went up. His chase rate went up. He basically had that drop in strikeout rate off the back of making more contact on pitches, both inside and outside the zone, which is good. A guy who chases more and and has an increasing swinging strike rate because he's swinging so much more seemed concerning to me, especially with a 406 bat pip. And so I was sort of, I was sort of down on him already. I agree. There should be some willingness to give him a pass. I mean, I, I, I'm a big fan of Austin Meadows. Who's the other guy who like Mankata seems to have been really impacted by COVID last year. Even giving Mankata a pass, I end up with him back sort of where I did last year, which is not as good as people think he is. And that, that's for me is why he's outside that time. I think he does, kind of, he does project as a decent BABIP guy, um, which gives me a little bit of confidence. He stole a lot of bases in the minor leagues. He's quick and he impacts the ball very hard. So that's definitely a, a legit concern to me. Because you don't want to rely on a high BABIP. That it's just risky. But I do think he's capable right. of, of maintaining a, a pretty high BABIP. So let's jump over to the outfield now. We are very, very similar here. Your top 10, you've got Acuna number one, Soto, Betts, Trout, Yelich, Bellinger, Harper, Luis Robert, Robert, Luis Robert. I've got to remember how to pronounce that. I struggle <laughs> I with it every time. Kyle Tucker and Eloy Jimenez. I've got 
Soto, Betts, Acuna, Trout, Bellinger, Yelich, Harper, Eloy, Tucker, and Robber as my top 10. I think the biggest question for me here is just those top three, right? And I think especially for keepers, I totally get how Trout ends up as number four of those top three or of those top guys. But Acuna, Soto, Betts, how on earth do you parse between those guys and, and put them in an order? No, that's a great question. And who's the, the manager of Washington? Is it Davey Martinez? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, he, he sent fantasy owners into a tizzy the other day when he said that Soto wants to run more. That that kind of gets at where I where I separate these guys. I kind of view it as Acuna is is you're going for speed. Soto is you're going for average. And Betts is you're going for, you know, seven-eighths of both of those things. So by that logic... I guess I should have bets number one. It's just more that stolen bases are just becoming so, so difficult to find. And even if Soto and Betts run more, and Betts certainly ran plenty last year, Acuna still has that stolen base ceiling that is really, really high. And although he strikes out way more than those two guys, he's still so good that could he put forward a few 290, even 300 averages in the years going ahead because he's so good? I think so. Um, so that's that's what led me to Acuna number one. But I guess, Chad, the point is you can't go wrong with any of these guys. Yeah. For me, I, you know, I put Acuna third mostly because of that strikeout rate. I think it gives him the, the lowest floor and, and the most risk of those three. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, you could take any of those guys and feel very good about it. Betts is the, the old man of the group, but he is not old by any means. And so, man, I... It, It's hard to argue. It's hard to argue with any of them. The other question I just got to ask you is you had Bellinger over Freeman, which I sort of pushed you on a little bit back in the first base. Now you've got Christian Yelich over Bellinger. How do you see those three as a group? Which I know it's a weird group to think about Yelich, Bellinger, and Freeman, but... I'm still 100% in on Christian Yelich, and and I think there's a chance, there's a really solid chance that at this time next year, he's right back in that uber elite Acuna, Bat, Soto, Trout, Tatis grouping at the top of drafts. He feels forgotten about because of a, a wildly outlier K percentage last year that might have been up by 30%. I should have the number in front of me, and I apologize that I don't. But it was a, it was a massive outlier, uh, and he, he seems forgotten about for that reason. And the entire top of the Milwaukee Brewers lineup is going to be different this year. It's, it's probably going to be Colton Wong followed by Lorenzo Cain, who you can say, like, well, hold on. What makes that so great? Compared to the Brewers' offense last year, I will gladly take that. The Brewers' offense can't possibly be as bad as it was last year. I have big expectations for Yellick. Now, a player like him, middle-of-the-order bat, certainly getting closer to 30, a little older than Soto and Acuna for sure. The speed could go at any minute. But it's, he, I think he's still a pretty safe bet for about 20 stolen bases. And this is a guy who's hit, what, 50 homers before? I love Christian Yellick. So I, I would. I would take Yellick over Bellinger and Freeman in a keeper format. Yeah, I think that K percentage, he had a 30.8% K percentage in 2020. He had never been higher than 24.2. And that was his rookie year in 62 games at age 21. Other than that, he'd barely ever broken 20%. He had been 20.6% for his career going into last season and then posted 30.8%. So total outlier, not something I, I would be super concerned about. He also did that. He just stopped swinging. Like his swinging strike rate actually was not that high last year. He just went from swinging at 45% of pitches, which is around where he'd been in his career, but that's where he was in 2019, to swinging at 34% of his pitches 
he just started taking everything. And he talked at the beginning of the season about being out of sync. I think he missed those, you know, having a real spring training. I, I, I'm with you. I think he's, I think he's going to bounce back. I just, for me, he's he's still behind Bellinger. Comes then after that top four, right? I, I think we agree on who the top three are, if not the order. I think we agree Trout is next, and then you've got Yelich, Bellinger. I've got Bellinger, Yelich. After that, lots of similarities. So. Let's try to quickly move through pitchers. We are a pitcher list podcast. We should talk about pitchers, but there's also so much pitcher content on pitcher list that I think we can we can move through this fast. Your top 10 at the starting pitcher, DeGrom, Bieber, Cole, Bueller, Giolito, Castillo, Nola, Flaherty, Bauer, Snell. Um, we are the same through the top four. I've got DeGrom, Bieber, and Cole, and Bueller in my top four as well. Then I go Castillo, Giolito. You went Giolito, Castillo. We both have Nola at seven. Then I go Scherzer, Darvish, Bauer, where you went Flaherty, Bauer, or Snell. The big difference here is Flaherty and Snell versus Scherzer, Scherzer and Darvish. Is this just an age issue for you? Uh, it, it, uh, it, this is so hard for me, Chad. As we get to know each other better, you're going to realize I, I love Max Scherzer. First of all, Darvish, major injury concerns, right? Now, he's been a horse for most of his career, but we can't ignore that right in the middle of it. And recently, he had elbow issues and he was terrible in Chicago. That second half of 2019 was obviously incredible. And then in 2020, you could easily make the case he should have won the Cy Young. So when I say he was terrible in Chicago, I mean, until that point. Sure. Um, it, it's an age thing. It is. Yes. I mean, these guys are are no doubt uh, approaching the twilight, if not in the twilight of their career. And while I think, sure, we could get another couple of years of elite production out of them, particularly Darvish because he's shown it more recently. Scherzer, though, battling both hamstring and neck issues since just the 2019 World Series, that panics me. And when I look at Flaherty and Snell, all of the tools are there. They're all there. And so while they might not be as good as, as Scherzer and Darvish this season, and I think they very easily could be in a keeper format. They are so much younger that, that just give me the young arms. Yeah, I think that totally makes sense. And I, I you know, I struggled with that bottom at list. Um, you've got Bauer near the bottom of your list. I got Bauer near the bottom of mine. He's going as the fourth pitcher off the board, but I am not very high on him. Darvish is going fifth off the board, but I'm much lower on him. I could have seen in those like eight, nine, 10 spots. I, I thought about Flaherty and Snell. I thought about Kershaw. I thought about Woodruff. I thought about Gallon. I thought about Glass now, given, you know, he probably doesn't get there for me in a redraft, but certainly in a keeper, Glass now is really interesting. I think that sort of list, Corbin Burns might be the next guy up from that group, but I don't think he, I think that's sort of where I draw the line. I, I can't really argue with that. And I think to, to be fair, as I'm looking at this now, I think maybe. You know, especially Scherzer and Darvish. Bauer being in the top ten, fine, but Scherzer and Darvish, I probably should have had a little bit lower because you're right. In, in a keeper format, they're they're risky. Either one of them could go at any time. So, Chad, can I throw you really quick? Yeah, we went over the the eight, nine, ten. But how much did you struggle with four through seven? Because we ended up eerily similar. But I had just as many fits with four through seven as I did with eight through ten. Uh, I struggled a little bit with the order. Bueller went up to the top of that group for me, mostly because of age. Not that those other guys are old, because they're not. But that was, you know, I, I I worry about mileage on pitchers' arms more than I do on bats. And so to me, the difference between a young pitcher and a young hitter is is pretty big. Other than that, I mean, I, I didn't have a hard time determining who my top three were. I didn't have a hard time determining who my next four were. I just couldn't figure out the order. That's fair. No, that makes total sense to me. I, I'm sort of in the same boat. I just, I'm imagining in that position and I want a starting pitcher. I don't know if it's as easy for me to just choose Bueller. I think I'd have a really hard time. It's not an easy choice there for sure. And the, the reality is for me, 
the one of those four that I'm going to get is the one who's left because I'm just not going to take, I'm not going to reach for one of them. I'll let someone else reach for them. And then at some point, at some point I'll come up with a turn where, you know, Giolito and Castillo haven't been picked or Nola and Bueller haven't been picked. And I'll take one of them, whichever one I like more at that point. But let's look at relief pitchers. Uh, we have the same top four, Hendricks, Hader, Diaz, Chapman. And then after that, only some slight differences. Um, you have Karinchak, Nick Anderson, Rizal Iglesias, Kenley Jansen, Brad Hand, and Devin Williams. I also then have Anderson, um, where you had him at six, I'm at five. I have Iglesias at six instead of seven. I have Karinchak at seven instead of five. So we have those same three in a different order. And then I go Presley, Kimbrell, Hand, as opposed to Jansen, Hand, Williams at the bottom. Let's talk a little bit about Williams. He's probably underrated. He's not a closer, right? And so immediately in five by five, people are like, doesn't get me saves. How important do you think that closer role is? I think it's it's super important, and and I think you and I kind of had the same approach, Chad. Of like, in a keeper league, who who cares what your long term outlook is at relief pitcher? Get the guys who are getting saves, right? But I think this year, and and really, it just continues to get worse. And Alex Fast talks about this a lot. Like, also don't draft saves because over what eighty relievers or something like that got saves in twenty nineteen. I think the number was eighty one. So there's this top group that is almost certainly going to get saves, which makes them that much more important. And I don't really care about the long-term value. But then there's Devin Williams. And he is just so, so good. I, I don't like just referencing stack cast sliders. I don't mean to be lazy. But if you look at them, it's ridiculous. And on top of that, if you consider how many trade rumors have swirled around Josh Hader, I think there's a real chance that Hader gets traded at the deadline this year if the Brewers are, in fact, out of it. And if he goes to another team, I think he'll probably close for them. The days of him going two or three innings are, are far away. He's really a one-inning guy now. That inserts Devin Williams as maybe the best closer in baseball in Milwaukee. So we're just one rumored move away from him becoming, you know, unbelievable. So to answer your question, saves are important, and that's what the focus should be, in my mind anyway. But I think he's closer to saves than maybe a lot of other guys might think. Yeah, I think that's that's reasonable. And I, to be honest, I've got I've got Karinchak a little lower than you in part because I think that he may not be the guy in Cleveland. Oh. As a Boston fan, you know Tito well, and and Tito Francona, he likes his guys he trusts, and he he has been at least in Cleveland, he's been very slow to trust the young guys. And so I think there's a possibility that he doesn't start the season as the closer. Um, which keeps me from putting him in my top five. But man, the talent is off the charts. And I think he'll get that closer role eventually. The guy I really struggled with on this list was Brad Hand. I think he's the guy in Washington, but there is a lot of risk in that profile right now. And he's really struggled. He's really struggled to keep his velocity up. I think there's a chance he falls off very quickly. I think if you're taking Hand, you should take a good long look at Tanner Rainey. Make sure that you're you're protecting yourself because... Rainey's going to put up some good numbers, I think, in the in the setup role, and I'm not sure Hand holds that job forever. So we've covered all of our top 10 lists. We now have one last thing to do, just like we do every week on the show, the auto new question of the day. Hit me up, Pete. What do you got? So, Chad, I already have some regrets with my odd new team, and we, <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like five minutes into it, and the season is far away, and I already have some regrets. And that's because... I looked at some of my players and I, you know, like, all right, I have a, for instance, a $3 Yasiel Puig and a $7 Randall Gretchik. And I was like, you know, I could see, I could see myself getting some value out of that. I don't want to cut them. I don't want to cut them. And so I kept a bunch in, in, in the pitcher department, it's even worse. I kept a bunch of guys that I really should have cut because now I'm sitting here and I've just got 22 bucks 
for the for the auction. I've got three hundred seventy eight dollars filled of my four hundred dollar cap. So my question to you, Chad, this week, if you were a numpty like myself who did not leave themselves with enough money at the auction because you wanted to hold on to somebody like Randall Gritchick. What is your approach to the auction when you don't have much money to spend? So to be fair, I traded for Gritchick earlier this offseason in a different league because I thought I was going to keep him. I ended up cutting him because of all the changes that happened in, in Toronto and the way that team came together at a bunch of outfielders. But I get why you keep guys like that. I do think one of the one of the lessons you learn playing out or new is to be sort of cold-hearted and harsh and, and make those cuts and give yourself the space. In general, if I find myself without a lot of money to spend, it depends a little bit about how my team is set up. More often than not, if that happens to me, it's because I really like my team and I feel like I've got most of my positions filled and things are in pretty good shape. And how, how much money did you say you have left to spend? I've only got 22 bucks. So 22 bucks is, is a pretty small number. Uh, <laughs> if you've only got 22 bucks, I think what, what I'd be doing is I'd be looking at like, what's the one position where you really could use a difference maker? What's the position where you need somebody who will actually help you? And I would look to spend the majority of that money on that and then figure out how you can piece together the other things you need. You're, you're going to end up in, in dollar days pretty early because of that. But I think it's the, the way to do it. Usually when I've been in a situation where I don't feel like I have a lot of money, it's more like 50, 40 or 50 bucks. And I find myself thinking like, all right, who's the guy I'm going to spend 30 on? Who's the guy I'm going to spend maybe 35 on? And I'm just going to like... I need a shortstop. I'm going to go get a shortstop. The other thing I would do is I would spend some time looking at which positions you feel like you'll be able to go cheap. If you need a shortstop, but there's a bunch of shortstops you really like and they're out on the board and you think you might be able to get someone inexpensive, don't spend 15 bucks. Even if you think there's a good value there, don't spend 15 bucks there. Whereas if you need a starting pitcher and there's only one or two guys in that $15 range and then there's a bunch of garbage left... That might be where you have to spend that money. And so you've got you've to take a look at what, who's available in the pool and be really targeted because you're only going to have that one bullet to fire. Now, the other option is you don't fire any big bullets and you, you, know, you spend three, four dollars on a bunch of guys. I find that when I do that, I'm much more likely to end up with a bunch of guys I don't really like and, and missing out on guys that, I, that I'm excited about. And so for me, when I don't have a lot of money to spend, the strategy is pick a spot target that spot, go get that guy if I can, and then figure out where I can be cheap elsewhere. But I think the other piece is don't get too stuck on that budget, right? So if you go in and you're like, I'm going to get this, I need an outfielder. This outfielder is a $15 guy. I'm going to go get him. You can't then go spend 18 or 19 on him. You may not be able to afford it anyways, but you can't get too stuck on that and break your budget because you just don't have room to maneuver. It's got to be more like, I want a $15 outfielder, but if that doesn't work, Here's my second choice outfielder. Here's the shortstop I'll go get instead. Here's the starting pitcher I'll pick up instead. Like have some backup plans, including if I don't get that $15 outfielder, who are the two, three, $1 outfielders I can go pick up later? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to have that that big money approach on a, on a particular player because as of right now, I mean, the good thing is my offense is, is awesome. Uh, and I know we talk about this a lot, but I, I've got a core of Lindor, Turner, Bregman, Betts, and Eloy. So I, it's a really solid core. But I'm missing a first baseman, and I think I have the worst pitching in the league, <laughs> led by my ace, James Paxton, maybe. And I do have some values I like there, a $3 Keiko, a $3 Tyone, a $13 Julio Urias. But I don't know. I think, I think I'm think i going to have to kind of split that up and have a, an approach where I go after two hefty players, a first baseman. And it doesn't even have to be that good. Maybe a $5 first baseman 
and then like a $15 starting pitcher and then just fill some, some roster spots after that. Yeah, that, that may be the best plan with that. I think the other thing I, I, w- I would suggest is be realistic about how likely it is you think you can get yourself into position to compete. And if you can't, one of the things to do at auction is to focus on who are guys who I think I can get for 3 to $5 this year who might jump in value. Go get those guys who you can potentially build around in the future or go get someone who you think is going to have a ton of trade value. Even if it's someone you don't think you're going to be able to build around for the future, you think like, wow, this like random older outfielder is going super cheap because nobody wants an old outfielder. In six months, somebody's going to want an old outfielder who's producing. That's the other approach is just to be just to be realistic about like, should I be trying to fill out a roster to win or should I be trying to get pieces that are going to get me teed up for a, a strong 2022? Yeah, no, that, that totally makes sense. And I definitely have some guys I'm, I'm going to target just for, for that purpose. But it's going to be conflicting to have an offense this good in a, in a rotation this bad. It is and awkward position. Yeah. I mean, the good thing is in a, in a head to head, you can cobble together a rotation a little bit, right? And you need to have enough pitchers to fill out those. I think it's a nine game start, nine starts per week cap, and you've got to get all of those, but having a strong bullpen and, and finding a way to cobble together a rotation can work in that head to head format. So it's probably worth, worth going after that. As long as you make sure you have enough starting pitching depth. That sounds good. So with that, I think we're going to wrap up. Thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. We'll be back next week with another one. So remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you can get the new Keep or Cut every week. Remember to follow Keep or Cut at Keep or Cut, cut with a K on Twitter. You can also follow me at Chad Young, follow Pete at Pete B Baseball. We'd love to talk keepers with you. If you've got any questions, let us know. If there's stuff you'd like to hear in the podcast in the future, let us know. And uh, we'll be back with you next week. Bye.